said hello, I'll say hello. How are we doing? We good? Let's pray before we dive into God's Word. Our Father, thank you that we get to gather here again today with our church family to love you, to sing your praises, to hear your truth. Pray that you'd guard my mouth to speak what is true. Father, that we might have open ears, open eyes, open hearts to receive your truth. And Father, thank you for bringing us here to love one another as well, to look to one another's needs ahead of our own. Thank you for the truth that we've just been able to sing, that we've pondered, that you have paid a great price for us. We owe all to you. We owe all to you. Reminded, Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, were rejected so that we would be welcomed. What a profound truth that is. I pray that you would harness that today to enable us to better welcome into our lives the voice of authentic ministers of the gospel. And Lord, let me pray too that in this time uh, you would cause your church to rise up and remember our call, our biblical mandate to care for the widow and the orphan and the alien in the land. Remind us of that. Help us to be faithful, Lord Jesus. We love you very much. We pray in your name. Amen. If you got your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 11 through 21. We've been journeying through 2 Corinthians as we approach the end of the book. Probably no surprise that we are going to bump up against different themes, different ideas that have run throughout the book. So we'll be hitting things that we've seen before. This was the case last week. We looked at God's purposes in suffering at the beginning of chapter 12. And Paul is revisiting that idea uh, again with us last week. And so I hope it was fruitful for you. Now, we're going to, again, bump up against a theme that we've seen before this week. And in particular, that is the theme that we started our discussion on as we started in the Second Corinthians. We did an overview of the book. We said that one of the major questions, <coughs> pardon me, that is being asked about this book is what does an authentic minister of the gospel look like? I mean, how do you know when you have run into someone who is genuinely a minister of the gospel. We've seen a lot of different things throughout the different chapters we've looked at. We've seen that they love selflessly and sacrificially, that they are willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, that it would go forward, that they pay a great price and are willing to pay a great price. They don't shrink back in the face of persecution. Uh, We've seen that they're patient and long-suffering. So we've seen a number of things around this idea of what does an authentic minister of the gospel look like. But here's what I'd like to do. We're going to see that theme again. We're going to bump into that theme again today in our text. Uh, What I'd like to do, though, is flip our lens just a little bit. Because while we have asked the question, how do we identify an authentic minister of the gospel? What we haven't asked is, how should God's people respond to an authentic minister of the gospel? How should God's people respond to it? So here's the question I want us to answer today. Is how do we, as God's people, respond to authentic ministers of the gospel? All right, now let me pause and acknowledge the self-interest of this sermon. Right, this is, this is kind of like my kids uh, presenting me with the gift card to Monkey Joe's for Father's Day. I mean, I like a good bounce house as much as the next guy. But let's be honest, they had ulterior motives when they brought that gift card to me for Father's Day, right? Well, I, I, I pondered this, I thought about it, I, I prayed about it. Of course, every week I have the joy of laboring through the text and asking God, God, what do you want to bring forward uh, to your people so let me tell you a couple reasons why I sense that this is the direction we needed to go, the question we needed to answer, and then I shrunk back from it because I recognized the self-interest, and I said no, and then God said yes. And so this is the direction we're going to go. Now let me, let me tell you why. Number one is it's because it's where the text goes. right? That's the most obvious answer. And, and we should and will always be uh, a people who say, what does the text say, and how do we submit ourselves to it? Somebody say amen to that. 
Don't feel alone in that. That's awesome. Good. So that's where the text takes us. In fact, Paul is going to start the, at verse 11, right in this section, first verse. And he's going to say, look, we've been boasting like fools when we should have been commended by you, Corinthians. We should have been commended because of all of these markers of an authentic minister of the gospel that you have seen in us. And yet you failed to, you failed to commend us. And that's what you should have done. It's really the theme of this whole section. How should they have responded to Paul? How should God's people respond to an authentic minister of the gospel? And the second reason, the second reason I think it's important for us to tackle this is because it's an important lesson for the people of God to learn, an important lesson for all of us to learn. How should we respond to God's ministers? Now, if we're going to thrive in Jesus, we need to understand this. We need to know it. Now, let me, let me ask this question. When we've gone through this book, and we've identified the markers of an authentic minister of the gospel. You haven't just been sitting out there and seeing if I measure up to those, measure, to those have you? No, you've hopefully been asking the question, do I measure up to those things? Because you are called to be a minister of the gospel, right? And as ministers of the gospel, we should all be asking ourselves, okay, am I bearing the marks of an authentic minister of the gospel as Paul is laying them out here and God for us through Paul is laying them out? It's been challenging for me. I mean, it's been a really rich time to work through this book and ask myself the question of that. But we've never been intending to just talk about the people who get up on this platform to try and lead you into the presence of God and help you grow in the knowledge of who Christ is. We've always, at all points, been talking about all of us. I hope you've recognized that. So in the same way that that's true, the same thing is true today. That while we're not, I'm not just here to talk about how should you receive those people who are up here, but rather... Rather, how should you receive everyone who comes to you as an authentic minister of the gospel? Not just people in some official capacity, but every minister of the gospel that comes in, you come into contact with. How do you receive them? How should you engage with them? And as ministers of the gospel yourself, how should you expect to be received when you bear the marks of authenticity as you go out? That's important for us to know and understand. Look, one of my favorite uh, stories in all of the gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. You guys familiar with that one? Right? Jesus feeds the 5,000. If you remember the story, I'll, I'll refresh you in case you're not familiar with it. The, Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're weary. They're in need of a rest. And they end up in a lonely place, kind of far away from everything, thinking they're going to get some rest. And lo and behold, the crowd follows them. And they're there all day. And Jesus decides he feels compassion for the crowd. So he teaches and instructs them and, and helps them understand who God is. And he does it for a long time. And finally, it comes time, no one has brought anything to eat. They're all hungry. And the disciples think, this is our chance to get a little rest. We'll tell Jesus to send them away. Jesus, they're hungry. They need to get back to their homes and get some lunch. Why don't you send them on their way? And Jesus says to them, anybody remember? You, you feed them. And the disciples have got to be thinking, what on earth are you talking about? We don't have enough money to feed all these people. It's 5,000 men, much less women and children. So we're talking maybe 10,000 people. We don't have the money for this. We don't have the food supply for this. What exactly do you expect us to do? He says, what do you have? They've got a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and they bring them to Jesus. And if you're familiar with the story, he multiplies them, hands them out. Everybody has enough. Now, a couple of key points to that story for those that are followers of Jesus, right? Do you remember how many basketfuls of food are taken up at the end of that story? Twelve. How many disciples are there? Twelve. As if to say, when you spend yourself for me, you'll always have enough. Do not worry that you will spend yourself and be completely without you will always have enough. And I think lesson number two for the disciples is, look, I can multiply this, do whatever I want and provide for the people, but I choose to send you out to be the ones that distribute the work of my power. I choose to put the miracle in your hands. 
Isn't that good? So I want to, I want to do the work through you. Now, if that's true, if God delights, if Jesus delights to do his work through the hands of his people more often than not, than just him sort of coming down without using people, but rather using people to display his power and to do his work, if Jesus delights to do that, then one of the questions that we need to be ready to answer as followers of his is, how will we receive those through whom he is pouring himself out? You guys follow that? It's an important question to be able to answer if we're going to thrive in Jesus. How do we respond to authentic ministers of the gospel? The third reason I thought it was important for us to talk about this is because, as I just said, you're not just recipients, recipients of the gospel, you are ministers of the gospel. And so this very much applies to you. And then the last one I'll say is this. This would be a much harder sermon to preach uh, if I didn't feel so deeply loved by you as a church. And, and I'll just say that to you. I, I probably don't say thank you enough, but you as a church have blessed me and blessed my family. You know, if it felt like, if I felt the opposite of that, it would probably be hard to get up here and say, you need to love authentic ministers of the gospel. I know it's a stretch that I'm considering myself. I'm making the jump to myself as an authentic minister of the gospel. I recognize that. Let's hope that I prove to be so, right? And if I prove to be so, then how should I be, how should I be received? Now, that being the case, it, it becomes much easier to preach this sermon when you feel as loved as I do. And I would say more important than, than me, you have loved my family well. You love my wife, my kids, and I'm so thankful to you. Um, I just want you to know that's not always normal. There's lots of pastors that are buddies of mine uh, whose families don't feel so loved by their churches. And so I don't take that for granted. I don't take for granted the way that you have loved my family. I know a lot of you, and it's a big space, I know a lot of you don't know my family at all, uh, but a number of you bump up against them on a regular basis, and it's a huge deal to me how well you love my family. So I just want to say thank you for that makes it easy to preach a sermon like this, I think, because I do feel so loved and well cared for. And if you're a parent, you know when someone loves your kids, they've loved you, right? And you feel that. I mean, it's just a, a huge deal to us that our kids are able to be kids in this space. You know, they're not, um, it's a huge deal that they don't have any expectations put upon them other than just being kids like everybody else's kids. You know, that because they're the pastor's kids, they're not expected to be holier than the other kids, because let me assure you, they are not. Um, <laughs> I have blinders on when it comes to my kids. I think they're pretty awesome. You probably have blinders on when it comes to your kids too, right? Like somebody in the last service went, no, I don't. I've been disabused of all the notions. Um, and we set up a counseling appointment and we're going to be good. We'll talk later. I'm just kidding. But um, the way you've loved my family makes this easy to preach. Okay, I'm going on too long on that. Thank you is all I really mean to say. Um, so let's talk about the four, I want to give you four marks or four ways in which we should receive authentic ministers of the gospel. How should we respond? And let me just tell you the four, and then we'll work one by one through them. The first one is this, that we should pay attention to the marks of authenticity. Pay attention to the marks of authenticity. Number two is that we don't call their good bad. I'll explain what I mean by that. Number three is that we would return their love. And number four is that we would put away sin in our lives as a right response to authentic ministers of the gospel. Those are the four. Let me walk you through them. But before we walk through those, let's read the text because we're just going to keep our eyes uh, rooted in it today, all right? So verse 11 says this. It says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, 
but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding. Oh, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. As I said, there are, I think, four markers there of how we're meant to respond to authentic ministers of the gospel. Let's start with the first one. First one is this. Pay attention to the marks of authenticity. Now, again, look at verse 11 and 12. Paul begins by saying, look, all this boasting that I've had to do, even though I boasted in my weakness and not in what made me eloquent or strong in the eyes of the world, I boasted in my weakness. Even that was really an act of foolishness that you forced me to because I had to defend the ministry because by defending my ministry, I recognize I'm not defending me, I'm defending the gospel. Did you catch that in verse 19? That's what he says. Have you been thinking all this time with all that we've said that we're defending ourselves? He says, no, we're not defending ourselves. We're speaking. He says it this way. We are speaking to God in the sight of Christ, right? Or let me make sure I get that phrase right. I want to make sure I I get that right. He says, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, is how he phrases it, and all for your upbuilding. In other words, what he's saying is, look, We've, even while we've been defending ourselves to you, we haven't really, the heart of that has not been to defend ourselves. It's been to build you up in Christ because we recognize that when you receive the truth that we have brought to you, you will be built up in him. But when you listen to these other voices, the ones he calls the super apostles, sarcastically, when you listen to them, you are being led astray from Christ. I'll tell you, friends, one of the hardest things, if you have ever tried to minister into someone's life to to help them grow in who Christ is and help them have a clear vision of who he is. There is nothing harder and nothing more dejecting than to labor long in that endeavor and then a new voice enters the equation that do not bear any of the marks of authenticity, does not point to Jesus plainly and clearly and to have your voice left behind for that voice. That voice that comes in and says, no, 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 just follow Jesus and all will be well. You'll be healthy and wealthy and all will be good. And you've been laboring long trying to help them endure and work through suffering and see God's purposes in it. And this new voice promising their best life now comes into the equation and everybody just goes, that sounds better. I'm going to go over there. That's really difficult. It's really difficult to, to, to be in this place of trying to say, this is who God is. This is what he's doing. And don't you know it won't be easy, but it will be worth everything because he is better. 
and to speak that, and then for someone with no marks of authenticity to come in and be listened to. Now, here's what I want to say to that. I mean, as you read this, Paul's frustration comes through, does it not? You get the sense that he's, he's frustrated and he's expressing that. Now, after all that they've seen from him and known about him, he's sort of asking the question, how can you follow these other men with bad intentions <coughs> and none of the marks of true ministers of the gospel? It's incredibly discouraging when you find yourself in that position. But here's the, th- here's the thing, friends. The thing that's discouraging about that, look, it's not that you feel left behind as a minister. It's not. It's not, oh, man, they're choosing somebody else to listen to you rather than me. What's discouraging is you know they're being led astray from what is true. And it pains you deeply because, because authentic ministers of the gospel want nothing more than they want the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his person to be rooted in the heart of every believer to see them grow to maturity, to see them love him first and most, and to not fall into traps and lies and snares and to not believe things that will dissuade them from the truth. That's what really wounds because you are after their good in Jesus and they're willing to leave that behind for what pleases in the moment. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. Now, Let's do, I said we were going to talk about the question, how should God's people respond to authentic ministers of the gospel? I want to cheat for just a second because there are two markers of authenticity that he gives here again that are just so rich that I can't help but point them out. We've got to, we've got to see them, okay? So look again at verse 14 uh, where he says this. He says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. In other words, what he's saying is that he's visited them twice, once for a year and a half. The second time is when he got run out of town. And now he's going to come for a third time and he's preparing them. He says, I will not be a burden, for I seek, now this is a great phrase, I seek not what is yours, but you. In other words, what he's saying is, look, I'm not, authentic ministers of the gospel are not interested in what they can get from you. They're not interested in your, your money. They're not interested in whether they can get you to join up for some event. They're not interested in whether they can sort of borrow things from you or take advantage of your reputation to build their own reputation. They're not worried about any of that. What authentic ministers of the gospel want is for Jesus to be planted in your heart so deeply that you love nothing more than you love him. They want you to be built up in him and to thrive in him. And then he says this, and friends, if you want to be an authentic minister of the gospel, this one should challenge you. Because in verse 15, right after verse 14, actually, let's see the end of verse 14. He says, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He's using a family metaphor to say, look, I'm like your parent. That's how I feel about you. You're like my children, my spiritual kids. I I brought the gospel to you and you received it. And then verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That word spent probably means what you think it means. In the Greek, it literally means to be used up, to have nothing left. He's saying authentic ministers of the gospel don't ask, how how can I protect myself from getting sort of used up and being exhausted? Authentic ministers of the gospel say, what more can I do so that Jesus becomes the great treasure of every person I come in contact with? Every person God gives me opportunity to minister to, to sit across the table from, to preach the word to, to declare what is truth. How do I spend and be spent 
so that their soul would find Jesus a great pleasure, a great treasure. This doesn't preclude having family boundaries and, and, you know, leaving your family behind at all times just to go out and use ministry as an excuse to sort of jettison the family. But what it does mean is that we have to be asking all the time this question, am I spending and being spent for the sake of the gospel? Let me talk to the, let me talk to the men in here for just a second, okay? Because this starts in your home. Now, I know you, you work a long day and you work a hard day, but we've got a lot of men who are coming home and imagining that they have earned the right to now sit on the couch, play the video games, check out, and do nothing beyond that. The gospel needs to take root in your home, and you must spend and be spent to see it take place. Grow into manhood. Leave behind the things of boys. You give yourself away so that your bride finds Jesus more beautiful and satisfying. You don't come home and sit down and turn on the TV. You take care of mama and see what she needs. How's her heart? What has God spoken to her that day? Men, rise to the occasion. We need men who will let the gospel saturate their homes and who will let this call to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel to, to begin in their homes. So that your kids, so that your kids see it. Look, you're gonna be tired, all right? Men of God spend a lot of their lives tired because they're spending and being spent. God will restore you he will renew you. He will give you what you need. Look, friends, this is a promise I'm trying to cling to all the time. I fail at it all the time. I am trying to remind myself to cling to the promise that if I will give myself away so that my bride and my kids are more satisfied in Jesus and I spend myself and I don't say it's time, it's me time. It should be me time now. Shouldn't I get a little time for this? For this? I mean, if you're me, it's college basketball, Right? Shouldn't I get a little time? No, I didn't earn, you did not earn to sit on the couch after your long day at work. You have earned nothing. Come home and spend yourself more. You earn the five minutes on the way home to pray to God and say, God, I need you to give me the strength to spend myself again now. Part two of my exercise of spending myself begins now. You know, if you need an extra 30 seconds, take another lap around the block. Not 10 laps around the block. <laughs> Spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. What a joy. What a joy. Did you catch that he said we gladly do it? We gladly spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. What a joy. What a joy. Number two. Number two. How do we respond to authentic ministers of the gospel? We don't call their good bad. We don't call their good bad. Now, this is a phrase I'm borrowing from a friend of mine, a, a mentor who poured into me in my early days in ministry. And he said, Trent, one of the things that you're gonna encounter, it's gonna be one of the hardest things that you will encounter, is when, when your good is called bad. And I thought I understood what he meant, but I'll tell you what, you don't have to wait long to figure out what it means. 
Because you will learn. If you're going to try and minister for the gospel, you will learn what it means to have your good called bad. Now, it's one thing, look, it's one thing that when you don't do well, uh, which we all don't at points, to have that sort of brought back and say, I'm not sure that was the best, or, you know, to you, sometimes you end up wounding people unintentionally, but you may wound them. And that's, you know, when somebody calls your bad, bad, it's not that hard. You're like, yeah, I didn't do good. Right? It's when your good is called bad that it's really hard. When you had the best of intentions, you actually exercised wisdom, you did well, and that very thing gets called bad. Have you been there? If you have kids, you've been there. Right? I've got a buddy. He's not a, he's not a pastor. He's just a guy that gives his life away for Jesus all the time. And he invested years in a student. Years. Laboring long over this kid. He had some significant challenges in a very specific area. And my friend had some expertise in that area. And, and just gave his life away so that this kid would grow and be loved and encouraged. And at one point he sensed that there was a, a needed transition in their relationship. They needed to shift a few parameters. And so he just brought that to bear and said, look, here's what we need to do. And rather than having that wise decision from a good heart called good, that student proceeded to essentially paint him as the devil in human clothes. I mean, just to say you are wicked and evil and you don't really care for me. And I think everything you've ever done has been a lie. That's having your good called bad, and it's really hard. That's what's going on with Paul here. Look, look at this. Look at verse 13 where he says, For in what way, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Sarcastically, he says, forgive me this wrong. Now, he's alluding back again, if you remember from previous chapters, to the fact that he refused to take money from the Corinthians. He wouldn't take their money because he didn't want anyone to be able to say, Paul is just in this for the money. He's not, he doesn't really care about you as a church. He doesn't really care about the message he's proclaiming. But the Corinthians, <clears throat> because they wanted what was considered in that day and age the great privilege of being able to support his ministry or his philosophy, his thinking, and get prestige from doing that, that because he wouldn't receive money, the super apostles were more than willing to receive their money, and he was not, and because he wouldn't, they looked down upon him for it. And belittled him for it. But now look what they're doing. Because look what happens next. In verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. I will not be a burden. In other words, I'm going to stick by what I've always done. As much as you don't like it. This is what is wisdom and this is what is good. I am not going to take money from you. So I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours but you. Then he says, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents. But parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. But then go down to verse 17 when he says, Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? And he goes on to talk about Titus and this brother. Here's what's happening. Here's what's more than likely happening. Is that Paul has sent Titus and a brother to take up the collection for the church in Jerusalem. Now do you remember when we were in chapters 8 and 9 that what we saw is that the crown jewel of Paul's ministry to the churches in this Aegean region was this collection he was taking up for the church at Jerusalem. The church there was being persecuted. They were exceptionally poor. They were in need of help. So what Paul did was say, I can get all these churches in the Greek world, in this region, to give money, and I'll take it back to the church at Jerusalem, and it will help them through a very difficult time. What the Corinthians are now saying is, you, you intend to take the money that we give to Titus and this other brother for the church at Jerusalem, and you're going to steal it. 
And in that way, rather than just take our money directly, you can get the money that you want, but without having to owe us anything in return. How crazy is that? That's what they're accusing Paul of at this moment. He's saying, we didn't, we didn't deceive you. We weren't crafty. We literally came to you and said, this church is in need. Why don't you give? Be prepared. So that's the accusation he's facing right now. It's been carried back to him. That is the definition of having your good called what? Bad, right? And it's exceptionally hard. Now, the reason having our good called bad is so difficult is probably obvious. I mean, no one likes to have their good called bad. To be, have your motives called into question can be difficult. But let me give you a couple of reasons why, okay? Let me give you a couple of reasons why um, this is particularly difficult. Number one, and then why it's difficult for us, why it's a bad idea for us to respond to authentic ministers of the gospel this way. But one of the things you need to know is when your good is called bad, when you're trying to minister the gospel, one of the reasons that's really hard is because you recognize that your motives are not always pure, that you don't always make the wisest decision even when you have best intentions. So when your very best is called bad, you imagine to yourself, what's going to happen when my mediocre comes into play, right? When my average, when my mixed motives trying to do a good thing you end up wondering, like, is anything ever going to be received? This is my very best, and it's not received. In fact, it's called the opposite of good. So I don't know what to do with the rest. It's very disorienting. It's very hard. But let me tell you why it's dangerous for us when people, when God sends people into our lives to be ministers of the gospel, and they are authentic. Let me tell you why it's dangerous for us to call their good bad. Because calling good bad, number one, because calling good bad fosters a spirit of mistrust and skepticism that is hard to uproot in us, and it closes us off from the power of God. Let me explain what I mean by that when I say it closes us off from the power of God. If ministers of the gospel who are authentic come to you and are declaring truth and trying to love you well, and you call their good bad, what you are doing is making it harder for you to see when good is actually good. When you call good bad, you are exercising a lack of discernment. It displays a lack of discernment, right? To call good bad. You're literally just getting the identifiers wrong. But when you do that, the other thing it does is it causes you to say, well, if, this, if you call good bad, then there's, there's a good chance you're going to call bad good. Which is a real problem. And it's a danger to us. It's why we need to so clearly know what the authentic marks are. I mean, look. If you have people that are speaking into your life, one of the things you should regularly do, go back to 2 Corinthians, read it through and ask, are they displaying these marks of authenticity? If they are, then I should respond to them in the way that God calls his people to respond. And if they're not, then you should identify them as false representatives of Christ and just move away. Just move away from them, right? So calling good bad fosters a spirit of mistrust that's hard to uproot. Shows a lack of discernment. And I said this already, even the best ministers will not always get it right, right? Even the best ministers, let's say in moments where they have great intentions, but they don't exercise wisdom. Look, that's gonna happen. Nobody's perfect, everybody makes mistakes. We say that kind of stuff all the time. But the reality is, if you let a track record of long faithfulness be undone by one mistake, then you will have no one left to minister to you in your life. No one, literally no one. You will, and this is what will happen. I promise you, friends. This is what will happen. You will have no one left to minister into your life 
And more than likely, you will begin to believe the only voice you can trust is your own. And you will only seek counsel from yourself or one or two others, maybe, who just think exactly like you. Because that's essentially listening to yourself. And when that happens, don't you know that you are in a closed system? And when nothing can come into a closed system, you get stagnant and you decay. It's very dangerous to work yourself into this type of a place where you have no one has voice any longer in your life. That's why you need to know the marks of authenticity, pay attention to them, reject those who don't represent those marks of authenticity, and let those voices in that do. Number three and number four I'm going to be quicker with. The first two I thought were the most sort of prevalent. But number three is this, return their love. How do we respond to authentic ministers of the gospel? Return their love. Look at verse 15. It says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Now that's, that's a rhetorical question. You get that, right? He doesn't literally mean for them to answer. He means for them to assume the answer, which is, no, you shouldn't be loved less, Paul. You have loved us, you have poured yourself out for us, you have spent yourself for us, and our right response is to love you the way that you love us, right? This is not unlike being a parent, and one of the great treasures of being a parent is when you've loved your kids with deep, uh, deep love, and they return that love, is that not one of the most joyful moments in life? I mean, oh my goodness. When, my, when I get one of those notes from one of my kids that just says, you're the best dad in the world, I love you, one, I know I'm not the best dad in the world. They're lying, right? But they love me. And as a parent, to receive that love. Now look, same thing is still true. We said this very first week we talked in this book. Same is true for a parent. Same is true for a disciple, disciple maker, a minister of the gospel. You don't just get to love when you're loved in return, right? You love even when you're not loved in return. That's the mark of authenticity. You love even when you're not loved in return. Hard, but it must be done. But let's not forego the great treasure it is and the great pleasure that it is to be loved in return by those we minister to. We should delight in that. That's a good thing to delight in. We don't fail to minister. We don't fail to love when we're not loved in return. But we can and should delight when God's church works the way it should. When those who minister are responded to with love by those they minister to. Boy, that's a good thing. Now, let's look at the last one. We put away sin. Our right response to authentic ministers of the gospel is to put away sin. Now, at the end of the section, Paul expresses his concern that when he comes to see them, they, he, will find them that they, he will find that they are not walking in the manner in which they should be walking. Look again at verse 20 and 21. He says this, For I fear... That perhaps when I come, I may, not, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. So that first list there in verse 20 is talking about disunity in the body. That's been in the church at Corinth. And saying, I'm, I'm fearful that that's going to continue to be the case. That you're not loving each other well. You're not working well together. I'm concerned about that. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 21. He says, I fear, again, I, I fear, he said that in verse 20, he's going to say it again here. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented 
of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm worried about the life of the body, the collective whole, and I'm worried about the life of each individual within it. I'm worried about those who have gone astray and are doing things that don't represent the righteousness of Jesus, that are, that are contrary to the, to the life of Jesus, that if you're following him, you don't do those things. That's not, he calls you away from those things, and I'm worried that you haven't left those things behind as his followers, that you're still operating the way you used to operate. He's concerned on those two levels. Now here's what he's essentially saying. Because of my presence in your life and the ministry that I have tried to, to bring to you as an authentic minister of the gospel, my hope is that you would consider that when you look at your sin and that you would put away your sin. Now look, friends, the, the, the chief motivation that each one of us experiences in our life for wanting to put away our sin, our habits, our patterns that are not pleasing to God the chief motivation is that we recognize what a great gift we've been given in Jesus Christ. We treasure him and we find him to be a great joy and we say he's better and knowing him is better than this thing that I take pleasure in or used to take pleasure in. Now I find it distasteful because now he's everything and everything that he is about is everything I want to be about. That's our chief motivation. But the other thing that Paul is saying here is that those that God sends to minister to us, our love for them should cause us to want to put away sin too. Whenever I'm sitting down across the table with a guy and we're talking about a, a pattern of sin in life and like how can, we, how can we make a strategy, how can we make a plan to put this sucker to death because it's killing you, it's not good and we want to please God and we want to live life. We don't want to be sucked into sin, that's, that's death. So what, what's our battle plan here? Anytime I sit down around the table from a guy and we're having that conversation, a lot of times what I will do is I'll take something from the table a, a cup or something, I'll put it in the middle. And I'll go, all right, this is the sin. We want to kill it. How are we going to kill it? And usually we'll start talking, about, well, I need to read my Bible more often. I'll say, yes, that's a good idea. Saturate our minds with the truth. We'll take a salt shaker and we'll put it there to represent that. And say, again, I'm only working with what I got here, right? Take that salt shaker and put it there and say, yes, that salt, yeah, we're going to attack it from that, that angle. But if we attack from that angle, where's it going to go? It's going to retreat. Right? So what do we need to do? We need to surround it. Exactly. How can we surround it? With accountability with other men. Yes, that's a good thing. Let's take the pepper shaker and put it over there. Right? And what else are we going to do? Right? All right, let's take the Splenda and put it over here. I don't know what Splenda represents. but right? We surround it on all sides with the truth of God's word, with accountability with other men, with disciplined actions that we put into our place. I'm going to fast regularly over my sin and ask God to give me repentance. I'm going to exercise this discipline in my prayer life. I'm going to make sure that I stop doing and stop going to those places that cause me to trigger into that sin. And so we recognize that what are we doing? We're surrounding it on all sides. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, your chief motivation is that God gave you his son, Jesus Christ, and your right response to Jesus is to put away sin. But guess what else? Guess what other motive he just gifted us? I, I pondered this this week because I really, I don't think I'd ever seen this. Uh, as, as profoundly clearly as I saw it this week. He intends for us to be motivated by the ministers in our lives. He intends for me to think back to the Bud Millers and the Rob Harrells and the Brian Wallaces and to say, they spent their lives for my soul so that I would grow into Jesus and my love for them should cause me to want to put away sin. Isn't that a good thing? To have that present in our lives. Those who have labored long over us, prayed for us, 
I mean, some of those men I just listed, I know that on a regular basis, they are still praying for me. I've known them since, I, one of them I've known since I was 17 years old. And he still regularly lets me know, hey man, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I feel humbled every time that man of God says he's praying for me. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. We surround sin on all sides so that we can destroy it. It has no place to retreat. We take all, all its air. We cut off its retreat path. Take away its resources to survive so that it will die. We put it away. And that's part of our motive is these godly men. Look, I'll give you another one too. When you're in life group, when you're in life group with your, uh, with your buddies and with your girls, one of the things you need to know is when you choose sin rather than righteousness, you are less able, you are less able to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. You are less able to minister to them, these people that you, I hope, love deeply. You are limiting your ability. That's another motivation for you to put away sin. The people that you love and that you want to pour into need you to put away sin so that you are strong in the gospel to minister to them and not weak. And you need them to do the same. So there's all these motives that surround our sin and cause us to say, I want to put it away and put it to death. Now, having said all that, we've, these are four thoughts on how we should respond to authentic ministers of the gospel. And friends, I want to say that even as I say that, I know that there are many of you who have been hurt by, diff by people who represented the church, represented the gospel, represented Jesus. Now, I don't know whether that person was authentic or inauthentic. I don't know if they were meaning well and just messed up. What I want to say is this. We want to be a church that is committed to not just the people up here, but all of us are committed to being authentic ministers of the gospel and to then responding to authentic ministers of the gospel in such a way that, that they are raised up and encouraged and propelled forward in the work that God calls them to do in our lives and in the lives of others. Somebody say amen to that. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you have been held in high esteem here. You've been seen clearly. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us authentic ministers of the gospel. Every single one of us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us how to respond to those who you send into our lives to minister to us. Help us, Lord Jesus, help us. Now, Lord, as we sing this song to you, I pray that what would well up in us is the right response of your people to the love that you have given us. We did not love you first. You loved us. Now may we love you in response in the way that we should. We thank you. We do love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.